the scriptures from the 17th chapter of Luke. As Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, he was traveling along the border of Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten lepers came out to meet him. They cried out from a distance in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And he said, go and show yourselves to the priest. As they went on their way, they were healed. And one of them, when he realized he was healed, came back and praising God in a loud voice, he threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus looked and said, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Has no one been found to come back and return thanks except for this, the foreigner? And he looked at him and he said, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you whole. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Biblically speaking, is there a disease worse than leprosy? And the answer is probably not. Uh, leprosy had uh, not only the pain that went with it and suffering from the variety of things that were uh, called leprosy in, uh, in the days of Moses through the days of Jesus, though not exactly like what we have Hansen's disease today, not exactly the same thing, but there was some pain and some suffering. But worse than the pain and suffering was the social isolation and ostracism. When you were found to have leprosy, you were pulled out of your family, out of your community, and you were put outside the camp in the, um, in the Older Testament and put outside the town or the village in the New Testament, and you were supposed to keep separate from everybody else who did not have leprosy. And if they came your direction on the edge of town, you were to wave your hands and call out to them a warning, unclean, Unclean, And often you positioned yourself near a major thoroughfare so that you could call out to people who were going by for charity, for alms, for help, because you weren't allowed to, um, uh, in isolation to associate with other people. There was no way to make a living. There was no way uh, to feed yourself. So you were dependent upon the charity and the goodwill of other people. So it was painful. It was socially isolating. And then worse, it had a terrible stigma that went with it. Uh, it was believed to be caused by sin. Uh, it reminds me of a story a few years ago. Uh, a mentor of mine, Ray Vanderland, who's taken a number uh, of groups every year to Israel, has uh, lived in Jerusalem for um, uh, several months at a time over the years, uh, had a student. And the student um, was called to be a pastor and a teacher in a Christian school. So he went to this Christian school as a pastor and began to teach them the things that, that he had learned about the Jewish roots of Jesus. Well, some of the parents and students were surprised and, and not at all uh, appreciative of the Jewish roots of Jesus. And so they accused him of heresy and they brought him up on charges before the Christian school board. And apparently when Ray Vanderland got word of this, he shouted into the phone back to his, his former student who was now being accused. He said, they'll all get leprosy. And we wondered what on earth is that about? Well, apparently, if you go back to the story of Moses and and his sister Miriam, when they got out of Egypt, they were into the wilderness. Uh, Miriam began to gossip about Moses and say things about Moses that weren't exactly true and, and weren't exactly right or helpful. And you may recall Miriam got leprosy. And the rabbis say this is the shortest prayer in the Hebrew Bible. And basically, it's just two words in Hebrew. And Moses prays, uh, God, heal her now. 
And in fact, Miriam was healed from the leprosy. But they began to tie gossip and leprosy together. And then they began to tie leprosy to other sins as well because they saw other stories of people getting leprosy in the Bible. There was a man named Naaman who was a Syrian general, so he's not a Jew, not even kind to the Jews. Uh, but he had leprosy, and he came to Israel looking for help. And uh, God, through the prophet Elisha, healed him. And he was so thankful, the general wanted to pay somebody, so he offers money and pays Elisha's servant, whose name is Gehazi. And Gehazi agrees to take the bribe and the credit. And he is struck immediately with leprosy because of that sin. And then further on, there's a king uh, in, uh, in the Holy Land. His, his name is Uzziah. You read about him in, in the book of Isaiah. And he is disrespectful of God and, and doesn't handle the things of God with appropriate reverence and care. And he's struck with leprosy. So all of a sudden you get a pattern that sin equals leprosy. And so many scholars feel like lepers are on the outside of town, not because uh, people feared that the disease was contagious. It's because they didn't want to hang out or associate with people who were known sinners. It was like they all had the scarlet letter uh, sewed on them as a leper. And so uh, it was hard to imagine a disease worse than leprosy in the biblical times. Uh, do you remember more than 30 years ago when we first began to found out about the AIDS virus and there was a lot of misunderstanding and there was a lot of fear, a lot of mystery And there was no small amount of blaming the whole episode on sin. You can imagine how that went. And you get a picture of leprosy in the biblical days. Is there anything worse? Probably not. In fact, in the Bible, you can't find any prescription for a cure for leprosy. Nothing in Dan's box. You know, I'm I'm thinking what Jesus could have done with Mucinex, but I'll have to think some more about that later. But there's nothing in that box. There only things in the Bible are our plans for management of the disease and the person who has the disease. There's no cure. It's thought to be a miracle. And if you uh, didn't have leprosy anymore, you'd probably been misdiagnosed, in which case you showed yourself to the priest and, and the priest would say, you're right, we missed that one. You don't have this. And you can go back to community. Or you had experienced an honest-to-God miracle. And so when Elisha uh, cures the leper, uh, Naaman the Syrian, and raises uh, a dead child uh, from the grave, it is proof of the spirit of God and the power of God in Elisha. And Jesus, as you know, uh, cured a good number of lepers and raised more than one person of the dead. And in the biblical world, they're on par. Cure of leprosy, raising the dead, are seen as equal in stature as a miracle. Is there anything worse in the Bible than leprosy? Probably not, unless you want to add being a Samaritan on top of it. Samaritans were hated by the Jews. They were considered half-breeds. They were considered theologically ignorant and wrong about the things of Scripture. And so this guy not only has leprosy, he's Samaritan to boot. But he's hanging around with nine other lepers on the edge of town, calling out for charity. But when Jesus comes, they don't call out for charity, they call out for healing. And Jesus says, well, go show yourselves to the priests, which is pretty interesting. Because I think sometimes as Christians, we think faith is a matter of what we believe in our head, rather than faith is a matter of what we do with our lives because of what's in our heart. You know, they don't instantly have the skin disease disappear. We're told as they went, and I don't know how many steps down the road it was, but as they went down the road, as they acted on what was in their heart and in their head, then they're healed. 
But the deal is only one comes back to say thank you. And Jesus make, points it out in two ways. One, he says, where are the other nine? Weren't ten healed? And my response is, well, Jesus, they're just doing what you said. They're on their way to the priests. And then the other thing he says is to the guy who comes back, he said, your faith has made you whole. He doesn't say it's healed you because he's already healed. The other nine are already healed. But he's saying that your faith now has made you whole. The world is the same word in Greek for saved, salvation, for shalom, for like everything in its fullness. It's like you have that now. The other nine don't have that. Is there a disease in the Bible worse than leprosy? I'd say probably not until I come to this story and then I'm thinking maybe there is. Maybe there's something worse than leprosy in the biblical world. And Jesus identified that disease as ingratitude. There's only one coming back to say thanks. And the one who's th- who says thanks is made well. You may. Uh, what's interesting is the Jews, as we talked about last week, their DNA is to say thank you. That's what Jew means. Jew, Judah means to praise God, to give thanks to God. And they also had a practice that when God does something for you, wherever and whenever it happens, you give God thanks in that moment. And if you happen to forget and you go down the road, you're supposed to come back to that place and say thank you. And then every time you are at that place, you you say thank you again. So some of you um, have probably heard this story. Uh, When uh, my older uh, son did very well on a test that he needed to do well on, I remember where I was on this campus and I said thank you in that spot. And every time I'm in that spot in the future, I remind God of how grateful I am that my son passed that test and, and has the occupation that he has because of it. And then I had another son that was involved on I-35 in a, in, a, uh, in a terrible crash where his car was totaled and the other car was pretty well bashed, you know, like 65 miles an hour. And he walked away unscathed. And so at exit 182, when I'm on my way to New Braunfels on 35, our San Marcos, our Austin, I mutter under my breath again, thank you, God. That he was delivered. You do it there on the spot and at the spot. And this one comes and does it. The other nine don't. And Jesus makes a point of saying all ten of the guys are cleansed and healed. But only one of them is whole. Because maybe there's something worse than leprosy. And maybe what's worse than leprosy is ingratitude. I thought just real quickly this morning. Let me draw three quick parallels between leprosy and ingratitude that I see um, that they have in common. Uh, The first one is this. That pain and suffering is associated with leprosy. It's associated with ingratitude as well. Typically, people who are ungrateful tend to not be very happy. They tend to be despairing because they're not grateful. They haven't recognized the good in their life. And since there's no good in their life, there's no recognition that God is anywhere in it. And it tends to make things very hard. And they often turn to despair. And despair is basically to not to have a picture where God is not in that picture. And gratitude is what it takes, as we mentioned two weeks ago, to bring God into the picture. So if we're not grateful, God's not in there. And that leads to some real unhappiness. The second thing is this ingratitude, I think, leads to a a bit of social isolation. Let me put it this way. How many of you like to hang out with whiny, ungrateful, unhappy people? How many of you really are looking forward to spending your holidays that way? Not so much. And so people who are ungrateful and unhappy and tend to blame everybody else for what's going on in the world and miss the things they already have. They're generally not a fun, not a fun lot to be around. A friend of mine is a chaplain in another town, 
and he's a chaplain at assisted living, uh, but also memory care and, um, and, and rehabilitation. All of this are done at this particular place. And he said, he, he said, I can tell you quantitatively. He said, I know this, that, that staff and visitors stay longer in a room with a grateful, cheerful person than they do with a person who is ungrateful and not cheerful. He said, I, you know, I can count it out in minutes. I've seen it. There is a certain amount of social isolation that will come to the ungrateful, which is as isolating as leprosy. And finally, as we mentioned, rightly or wrongly, leprosy got um, uh, connected by people in biblical times with sin. But ingratitude is clearly connected and called the sin uh, by the, the sages and the rabbis in Jesus' day. Uh, they said that to not be grateful to God was to steal from God the glory that is due God. So God does something nice for you. You don't say thank you. And so God misses out on that opportunity to receive thanksgiving and blessing. And so they said that's tantamount to stealing. And then they said this, and to not be grateful to another person for what they do to you is tantamount to not being grateful to God. And this is fascinating. They argue from the story of Joseph. Do you remember Joseph in the Bible? He had all those things go wrong for him. And then he ends up a slave in Egypt. But he's put in command of a guy named Potiphar's household. Runs his whole business, runs his house, runs everything. And Potiphar basically says, you got the run of the house. You're in charge. You can touch everything. You can do anything you want except, except my wife. And, of course, Potiphar's wife tries to seduce Joseph. And in Genesis 39, Joseph tries to explain to her, this isn't right. He said, your husband has not withheld anything from me except you. And it would not be right to do this. And to do this, I would be sinning against God. And so what the ancient uh, sages and rabbis said is, therefore... When you are ungrateful to a person and not thankful to them, which Joseph would have been had he done this, Joseph saw that as also being ungrateful to God. So a part of Thanksgiving is not just to thank God, but to thank the other people in your life. And because this is such a serious matter, because sin is a serious matter, let me give you just three new hints this week that I I, I found out about gratitude that may or may not be helpful. Here's the first one. To be grateful, you need to have a very long memory. You need to make your mind run back further than it normally does for the good things that God and other people uh, do for you. Uh, You need to be able to go uh, way back and not just what have you done for me lately. There's a story, I'm sure it's not true, of a United States congressman talking to a constituent. And he's been elected and reelected and reelected and reelected. And he's he's talking to his constituent about the upcoming election. And this constituent said, I'm not going to vote for you this this time around. He said, what? He said, don't you remember 10 years ago? 10 years ago, when your business burned down, I helped you get a loan from the small business administration and and your business got rebuilt. And and the constituent said, well, yes, you did. And he said, six years ago, when your daughter was traveling in another country, got in trouble, they jailed her. I went through the State Department and I helped her get released and she came home. I did that. And the constituent said, well, yes, you did. And the congressman said, two years ago, when your wife had that mysterious ailment and, and we didn't know and the local um, physicians weren't quite sure what it was. And I found that hospital in another state that seemed to have specialists in this area. And she went there and got better. And I got her into that hospital. And the constituent said, well, yes, you did. And then he paused for a moment and then said to the congressman, 
but what have you done for me lately? Wasn't enough to save the business, the daughter, or the spouse. It's our short memories that often get us in trouble. Uh, It's a fascinating story about a Jew. His name is Pfeifferberg. And Pfeifferberg was one of the Jews purchased by Oscar Schindler. And so uh, he finds his freedom. But he meets Schindler. And before uh, he exercises his freedom and travels to the West, he says this to Schindler. He says, I will make people remember your name for a long time. And that's it. And he moves to the West. And after some years, he changes his name from Pfeifferberg to Page. And he moves to California and spends time there. And after a while, he comes across an Australian-born novelist named Thomas McNeely. And he tells McNeely about the story. And McNeely then will write what we come to know as Schindler's List. I will remember you. I will make your name known for a long time. Have longer memories. So it's not just, what have you done for me lately? Another thing is I think we need uh, to learn to give thanks uh, for things that um, are, shall we say, less than perfect. Like God's given us things, but maybe not everything on our list. Like we, we wanted this and that and that, but we only got this. And we tend not to give thanks because we don't have everything yet. And as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, if you wait to give thanks until the circumstances change, you're not going to give thanks. And so part of the art is learning to give thanks for gifts that are imperfect. Learning to give thanks for what you already have, not what you still uh, don't have. And, and so it's a practice of just thanking God, even when things aren't quite like you want. So as I mentioned, Thursday was a big day for me because, you know, my book that I'd written, the first book, um, I'd never written, got published. And, and so it comes up on Amazon. So I'm really excited. And so I can get it right away. I, I order it uh, on the Kindle and I start reading and I find some typos that I missed the first 12 times around. And I'm feeling, mm. That doesn't look so good. And then I'm also realizing that I didn't sell near as many books on the first day as Max Lucado does. <laughs> you know, I mean, you can go that route. Or you can be thankful for what you have while you have it. And then finally, it's a Hebraic practice to give thanks for what you've been spared. Give thanks for the things that haven't happened to you. Probably at my age, my mother was already beginning to get Alzheimer's. And I still have my memory. Just a few years after my age, my father, who was already struggling with back problems, would have go through the first of three back surgeries. And I haven't had to, have to do that yet. The ability to give thanks not only for what you have that's imperfect, but for the things that haven't come your way makes you a thankful person. I think the best example of this is one of my heroes. He's a guy named Fred Craddock. He used to teach preaching. He retired at 80 years of age. And so two years ago, CNN.com is interviewing Craddock. He's 80 years old. And he's just found out that he's got Parkinson's. And so they're interviewing him about this. And they say to Craddock, you know, well, how do you feel about that? You know, that you've got Parkinson's now. And his response was, I'm 80 years old. I ought to have something. I mean, that ability to keep that in perspective. And maybe one of the most influential things I've ever read, a man that was a pastor here in San Antonio at the Episcopal Church for a a while. His name's John Claypool. But way back in the 1960s, John had an eight-year-old daughter. Her name was Laura Lou, and she came uh, came up with childhood leukemia. 
And she got the best medical care that you could get in 1967 and 1968. But after an 18-month battle, um, she died. And it was clearly, says Claypool, the worst day of his life. And he wrote about it in a book called Tracks of a Fellow Struggler. He said, but what's interesting is when I came back to the church where I was pastor after a few months, you know, well-meaning people came up to me and they tended to be in two camps. And one camp would come to me and say, well, John, you know, you just got to accept that. That was God's will. God had better and other plans for your daughter. And he said, that was just really hard to accept that, you know, God was orchestrating that. And then there were other people who would tell him, and some from in the church and others from outside the church, that there's probably something wrong with this theology. There's probably something he doesn't understand about God. And that one day, you know, he'll have to adjust his theology to fit what God is really like. And one day he'll completely understand what happened. And he said, the way of resignation, the way of understanding, he said, both of them seem beyond me. He said, I couldn't make up my mind, but I had to keep living. So what was the way that I could go forward? And he said what was helpful to him was what he called the way of gratitude. He said to realize that the 10 years we had together, even the last 18 months, were a gift. And were better than not having any time at all. He said, I realized that life is a gift and birth is a windfall. And the appropriate thing to say is thank you. And forward he went in gratitude to the day of his death. Is there a disease worse than leprosy? Or childhood leukemia? Maybe not. But for the soul, maybe there is. And it's called ingratitude.